I've had several conversations in the past few weeks, and I think because of this sermon and just thinking about how Nehemiah encourages us, encourages us towards God's kingdom and thinking about what does that look like and even the theme of our series, what are we building, thinking about that. What is it that we're doing as a community of believers? What are we building together? I've been paying more attention to my language and my speech and how I'm talking and what things I'm saying when I'm talking to people about God's kingdom been paying more attention to my words, the words that I choose, and how I use them when I'm talking to people about believing in or trusting or giving themselves over to the Lord. And I'm realizing how much, to, and I, I'm not happy about this, but I'm, it's good to be able to see it, how much cultural luggage that I have adopted, or I think that we have adopted, ultimately, when we're talking to people about living in relationship with or coming to know or engaging in or doing work for the Lord. I think if we look back a few years, I think generally speaking, if you've been around the church for any length of time, I think in the 80s, this sharing of the gospel leaned super heavy when I say gospel, by the way, if you've been with us, we define this term pretty regularly. But this reality of Christ coming for us, that I deserve wrath, but he gives me grace, right? That I'm grateful for that, and that I've been considered righteous, even though my actions haven't um, deserved that title. I've been considered righteous, and I am activated to righteousness, to walking in the manner to look like God. So when I say gospel, this is the good news that Christ came to offer us life when we deserve death and wrath. But in the mid-90s, this sharing of this good news, this gospel story, often employed this scare the hell out of them tactic. Right? Turn or burn. Lots of yelling and spit. And then the mid-90s to about the mid-2000s, there, there seemed to be a reaction to this hellfire tactics of the previous generation and an overcorrection and presenting God or the gospel as this cosmic errand boy who is really about making our life better. I remember as a youth pastor being preoccupied and hearing other people teach trying to help people believe that you can be a Christian and still have fun. As if our fun is the ultimate right meaning for life. Or worse, and I think this is we've seen this even more recent we have turned God into a desperate teenage hand-wringing girl who's just pining for a date with you. It's not just our culture that has become obsessed with self. It's found its way into our own thinking. Often rising to the top of our own conversations about God or gospel conversations 
there are more words I'm finding about how a relationship with God will solve your problems, make your life better, easier, okay, if not trouble-free, but purposeful, meaningful, fulfilling. And while a relationship with God does indeed provide those things and much, much more, we often start there to the omission of the holiness of God, our offenses against Him, our rebellious hearts that say, I will do my life your way. We ignore that God hates sin and that we're in desperate place for somebody to reconnect us with the holy God who we have no business being in His presence. We have forsaken to exalt the Christ who covers our sin and saves us and then brings us into the privilege of His presence. Not God having the privilege of ours, but us being in the privilege of His I think in all of our wordsmithing to make the gospel easier to swallow, it often eludes us that Jesus often obscured the truth in parables. Rather, we provide apologetic facts, inviting people to sit in judgment of God as if if He needs to produce enough evidence to justify Himself. The gospel has been twisted into God assuring our minds rather than us bending our minds to Him. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is a direct challenge to that way of thinking. The book of Nehemiah wants to remind us that everything we do is about the Lord. Nehemiah wants to say that God's will is the penultimate reality in our lives. Nehemiah's words teach us about the kingdom of God on earth being established and His will being done here as it's done in heaven, and that requires more of a slight adjustment to our schedules. So I'm talking to you about this church because as we head into this book, we cannot afford to sit back and just kind of think about it like sometimes we often do and that kind of asleep at the wheel. Maybe I'm just going to adjust my life a little bit. If we're not careful, and I'm talking about us, Vine and Branch, not them out there, us right here. If we're not careful, there's an elephant in our room. And his name is lust and greed for the American dream. And we attempt to ignore the fact that he's sleeping on the floor in our living room by putting a nice little doily on his belly, embroidered with Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. We want to justify this reality, and forsake what God's called us to do. So why am I saying this? To make us feel bad? No. But as I've been studying through the book of Nehemiah, and I look to see what's coming 
and trying to unpack these truths. If we're going to hear and submit to the truths of Nehemiah, it must lead us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And I'm realizing how hard the message of Nehemiah can be to hear. If I get to study it over and over and over for 15 and 20 hours a week and then present it to you, I'm realizing it's taken me about halfway through to realize, man, I am off here. And I get to absorb for multiple hours what you guys only get in 15 minutes and I think, or 45 minutes. Don't, don't get too hopeful, okay? <laughs> Thanks, mother. <laughs> yeah. Mom's back. But I'm realizing how hard this message of Nehemiah can be to hear because we carry so much cultural luggage. You know, when you're driving at night, you've got other people in the car, you kind of feel responsible. It's nighttime, maybe like now, winter, it's kind of cold, you got the heat going, there's the hum of the road, your eyes start to feel kind of heavy, you keep trying to pop them open, then you find yourself falling asleep and you jolt awake and you're like, oh, well, oh, oh, yeah, and you turn the air on or crank the music, I, I got to start paying attention here, I, I got to, I got to really... I've got responsibilities here in this car. I've got to I've got to be aware. Friends, we need to have that kind of mindset we head into Nehemiah. We can't just coast into it. Because he's calling us to build the kingdom of the Lord. And that is no slight adjustment unless we're just playing church. Nehemiah jolts us awake and offers us further energy and insight into your kingdom come, your will be done. We need to be alert to the truths that this book poses to us. And so Nehemiah helps us by thematically repeating three questions and we're going to hear these over and over we're heal them hear them again tonight first one is what are we here for and notice i didn't say i what am i here for because nehemiah forces us to ask the plural beyond ourselves what are we doing here together second question what are we building What are we building? What are we striving for? What are we laying up for ourselves? And thirdly, who's partnering with us? If what we're building is bigger than we can possibly manage, who are my peeps? Who's going with me? Who are my partners? Are we of like mind? Do we have the same goals and vision? As we begin peering into those questions and answers tonight, we're going to gain five insights from Nehemiah's prayer. This is what we're going to be taking a look at. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Nehemiah is praying. 
and unifying. Oh, he, and he's going to give us in his prayer, we're going, to, we're going to pull out five insights from his prayer that are helpful for us. And unifying each of these five insights from his prayer is this one thought. Nehemiah's prayer is a preparation that God's will is to be done by God's people through his promises for his glory. That's a thesis, if you will. That's what pulls these five insights together. God's will to be done through God's people by His promises for His glory. Meaning, for His attributes, everything that He is, His character traits, to be put on display. That's what His glory means. So let me read Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 4. It's going to overlap with last week and then read through the end of chapter 1, verse 11. As soon as I heard these words, he's talking about the condition that he was given the news of Jerusalem, that it was still in shambles. And he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed, By your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Here's the first thing that we see in Nehemiah's prayer that We kind of covered last week, so I'm going to move through this one kind of quickly and just kind of give an overview. But the first thing is this, Nehemiah fervently seeks for the will of the Lord to be done. Not his will, but the Lord's. And again, we covered this last week, but as a reminder, Nehemiah is fervently concerned with seeing the will of the Lord accomplished, and that is his primary motivation. It motivates this prayer. This prayer of Nehemiah is an on-ramp to the rest of the book. But again, I'm finding that it's very, at this very point, we're attempted to miss the exit. In my study of Nehemiah, and I think it's this book in particular, 
I found it easy to morph the truths of this book into self-serving principles. I'm studying to teach. Often after I've done some study, I'll start listening to other sermons that I'm interested in on the same topic from teachers that I trust. And I found this, this propensity to morph this teaching into self-serving principles is not only my own temptation. I only found two other sermons that didn't veer off into some version of Nehemiah teaching us to increase our self-confidence or growing in your prayer life or how to start a new ministry or launch a new business or having a bold vision or how to lead people effectively. Let me say this clearly. Nehemiah was concerned with none of that. It was not on his radar. What was on his mind? The will of God done by the people of God through the promises of God for the glory of God. That's what was on Nehemiah's mind. And my temptation was leadership lessons, a bold new you. You know, that's the temptation. But we have to stay stick to the script. And so here's the insight response for this first principle, for this first part of Nehemiah's prayer. I want to encourage us to continue to cultivate a heart that's fervent for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, that, that needs to be our primary goal. As we've read times together, the Westminster Confession. That it's our job to love the Lord and to enjoy Him forever. That we would continue to cultivate a heart that's fervent for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my life, as it is in heaven, in our family, in our church family, as it is in heaven, that we would continue to cultivate a heart fervent for that. The second insight that we gain from Nehemiah's prayer is this. Nehemiah anchors his fervency for the will of God in his knowledge of God's word. Through Nehemiah's prayer, one of the things that becomes very clear as we study is this, that Nehemiah knows and understands the scriptures and he wants to see them fulfilled. It is clear that Nehemiah's prayer is anchored in the teaching of of Moses from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We're going to see this more clearly in just a minute. Even as he begins his prayer, he appeals to the God who keeps his covenant. We see that Nehemiah's heart and his mind are anchored in the truths of Scripture, and he is calling on God to do what he said in his word. You made a covenant, Lord, not me, and I'm asking you to keep that covenant. But I know right where it is in your word, if you need to remember He's calling on God to do what he said in his inspired word that he would do. 
This is, by the way, why we see Nehemiah so emotional in verse 4. He's crying. He's weeping. He's praying. Because he knows and understands God's word, and he's distraught that it's not being fulfilled, that it's not happening, it's not being lived out. And so even in this passion for Nehemiah to see the will of the Lord lived out, we begin to see an example for us that answers the questions, at least it did for Nehemiah, he knew this for sure, why are we here? What are we building? And if we want to respond to the word of the Lord, not just as hearers of the words, but doers, and if we're going to be passionate like Nehemiah that drives us to tears when his will isn't being done, then our hearts and our minds must be saturated with the word of the Lord. What God's Word puts forth as priority is our priority. What He says to organize our lives around, we begin organizing our lives around. And then we pray and act towards their fulfillment. So the second insight into Nehemiah's prayer is this. Nehemiah anchors his fervency for the will of God in the knowledge of His Word. And the insight response is this. For us, recall biblical truth and consider why we're here and what we're building. My encouragement to you is to spend time as either as an individual, if you've got friends that are Christians, just asking them the question, putting this forward. Why, why are we here? What are we to build? If you're a father, a leader of a family, or you're a mom and you're at home with your kids, or You are a little one with siblings. I would encourage you to spend some time on this question. What? Why are we here? What are we building? The third insight in Nehemiah's prayer is this. Nehemiah calls for a personal, generational, and community repentance. This is verses 6 and 7. Confessing the sins of people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house, we have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Because Nehemiah understands God's word, he also confesses his sin, his family's sin, and his community's sin as the appropriate response. I can't help to think, but Nehemiah must have had in mind the state of Jerusalem and why they were where they are. So after the first return, remember we've talked about this um, for the last couple of weeks, Nehemiah is talking about the third return of the exiles. But after the first return... 40,000 people leave Persia 
and head back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. The people had been there for five years, but the reason they had returned was to build the temple. And that still had not been realized. So they came back to rebuild God's city, to rebuild the kingdom. They're there five years, and it still hasn't happened. What's going on? What's the problem? We get insight from the prophet Haggai, who speaks to Zerubbabel. Haggai chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. we got things to do first. It's not time to rebuild the Lord's house yet. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not put them into a bag. Does he not put them into a bag with holes? In other words, he's saying, enough is never enough for you. So thus says the Lord of hosts. This is the second time he encourages them. Consider your ways. Verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? declares the Lord. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. In other words, Nehemiah recognizes that he and his family, his father's house, and his community, God's people, are in the condition they are in, not because God has failed his people, but because his people have been busy with their own projects to the neglect of the kingdom of the Lord. You with me? So here's the insight response from this section of Nehemiah's prayers, that we should confess areas where we and our family generationally and our church has neglected the work of the kingdom of God. We need to do this. We need to take it serious. We should rejoice in the ways that we are building and moving forward. But far too often, you might agree with me, I've been caught up in my own petty projects. Yep. The fourth, the fourth insight that comes from Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah appeals to God to be faithful to his promise. And so having confessed sin as necessary and as instructed, Nehemiah now calls on God to remember. Specifically, he is asking God to remember his promises that he made through Moses to his people. Leviticus 26, 38-42 And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. But if they confess their iniquity, 
and the iniquity of their fathers, in the treachery that they have committed against me. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And this is what Nehemiah is appealing to. I've just confessed. It's a genuine confession. We have neglected your kingdom. I'm confessing, Lord. I'm confessing on my behalf, my family's behalf, my community's behalf. And now I'm asking you, please respond to your promises. Or in Deuteronomy 30, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God and you and your children and obey His voice, all that I have commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And Nehemiah is saying, remember that, Lord? Remember your word spoken to us? Be faithful to your covenant. Consider your character, not ours, in your faithfulness to your response to us. Nehemiah confidently appeals to God to be faithful to what he has said. In much the same way, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples that is similar. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea and he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, yeah, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, he's not talking about Peter, he's talking about the rock of this truth that you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that reality, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church, that's our promise. It is true. Here's the promise. As true as it was for the people of Nehemiah's time, I will establish my kingdom. Christ reiterates that with him now as king Christ over all the universe and says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, We're on the winning team. So here's the insight response from this section of Nehemiah's prayer. Take courage from God's promises and prepare your hearts to take action in faith. When I say prepare your hearts, I'm talking about what's coming in Nehemiah. Prepare our hearts and our minds to take action in faith. Take courage from God's promises 
kid up. <laughs> Gear up. There's a fifth insight from Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah prays to include God's people to build God's kingdom. As Nehemiah continues in prayer, we see his deep concern for God's people and that they be a part of building God's kingdom. He says, they are your servants. This is the end of verse 10. They are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong arm. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in your name. Notice how Nehemiah recognizes God's ownership of his people. These are your people that you purchased with your promises. The work has already been done. And then he also uses the plural to reference God's people. Be attentive to the prayer of your servant, me, and to your servants. He recognizes he's not alone and he's not the only one praying. Be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight in your name. Nehemiah knows what he's planning to do, what he's going to appeal to God to do. He wants to help build the kingdom. And he knows he needs the other others who are sharing this same desire, those who delight to fear the Lord's name, and he's appealing to God to fulfill his promises through his people. Now, we're not Jews building a physical wall, right? But church, we are building something. Remembers Peter's words to the early church. We read these together as we started. As you come to him, a living stone. Listen to the building language. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may call that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Hey friends, he has called people from every nation, all kinds of us, difference, Puerto Ricans, Hispanics, Persians, Latinos, you name it. Chinese, Latin Americans, all of us. He's called us to be a nation assembled under Christ the King. We form a new nation. And we are to called to be His people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for His possession. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters, and our skin tone doesn't matter. Yeah? He says, then this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. This is Nehemiah language. I 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The things your flesh wants to do that are not good for you, they want to kill you. But abstain from those things. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God on the day of visitation. I believe that through this study, God is wanting to expand our vision for our resources in the body of Christ to build his kingdom. Church, I see this happening. God wants us to do something unique together. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about building his kingdom in a way like we've never seen it before. He hasn't assembled this amazing group of people with the things going on here that are happening so that we can spend it on ourselves. That is so exciting. I think far too often we consider God's will individually. What's your will for my life? What's your will for my life? Part of the reason we can't decide what His will for is for our lives is because it doesn't include anybody but us. And His vision is bigger than that. Or even for us as a family. What's your vision for us? As a, what's your will for us as a family? But rarely, I think, do we consider specific, intentional ways that he wants us to couple together with other families and to seek to do his will together. We're going to be called to do just that through the truths of Nehemiah. And we need to to be wide awake at the wheel. This past week, we met as a leadership team, Bob, Ian, Jason, and I. We, we spent nearly three hours together. We talked about continuing to develop men in leadership and how to strengthen them to minister to their families. How do we capture this in such a way and communicate it that it's not just about building men, but we know that men are the, are the way to minister to families effectively. We could create programs all day long. Nothing works as good as God's plan. How do we do that and still communicate that this is not just about the men, it's about everybody. But we realize that the most, the, the most effective way to do that is through men. It starts there, but it doesn't end there, yeah? And not for nothing, we're not calling them to raise them up, but to be servants, We spent a lot of time thinking about that. And then also how to encourage and support kingdom building businesses. We've got a lot of entrepreneurs in our church. Businesses that will impact our church, develop resources in our community. We talked about the amazing group of women that we have in this church, young and old, single and married, who are managing their homes, single and married. Uh, My family had this amazing experience over at Lori Winford's house last night. She fed us this amazing dinner, and then we just played cards together and talked about the Lord. She ministered to us. We 
We talked about how we see young and old ladies who are providing hospitality in their own homes, who are crossing generational lines to minister to one another, who are seeking to serve the church in creative ways. I've seen pictures of a young lady in our church doing foot baths and massages for ladies, just seeking, how can I serve the Lord here? Guys, this is fantastic. How do we keep that going They're seeking to serve the church in creative ways and to support their husbands and their children. How do we encourage all women, single and married? We talked about the best way to develop and mobilize family ministry teams for kingdom building. We dreamed about intentional apprenticeships to train boys and girls and with marketable skills to launch them into our communities and families equipped as kingdom workers. We discussed how we would facilitate and encourage one-on-one discipleship for those among us who have recently come to Christ. This is exciting, church. But if we can't just we can't just talk about making disciples if we're not doing it. We've got people who are young in their faith and they need to be trained. They want to be trained. We talked about how we're going to get better at that. Or those who are need parenting assistance, or those who could use some walk alongside counsel for a season. Hear me, team. I've been on three churches full-time, and in my experience, at least 75% of leadership meetings were on administrative and logistical issues. Lighting, smoke machines, parking lots, and that, some of that stuff's necessary. I'm just telling you, we, the four of us spent 90% of our time enthusiastically focused on shepherding the flock of God that is among us, and exercising oversight willingly and eagerly. Yeah? True, Ian? We did. While not perfect, the Vine and Branch family is growing, and we are a unique community where God is at work. God is doing amazing things here. And so the insight to Nehemiah's prayer regarding this community and what God is doing is this. Join in. Joyfully produce good deeds that love your brothers and sisters and silence unbelievers. Join in. Now, some of you might be like, you guys keep talking about all this stuff that's going on and people getting together and I'm not experiencing it. Okay? then here's my encouragement to you. Don't get stuck feeling sorry for yourself. Don't wait for people to prove your value by talking to you first. Your value is not in people. Move out. Join in. Don't get stuck licking your wounds, perceived or real. And if they're real, you need to, we, got, we can work on that. We've got a rule book that shows us how to do relationships together. But don't get stuck there. The temptation is to feel sorry for yourself. You have been gifted. You have been called in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You have them. Join in. Seek to invest. Involve yourself. Ask for help. Join in. 
It's happening. Don't let it run past. But if you're like, yes, I love it here. I'm experiencing it. Then rejoice. Keep it up. Give praise. But don't just let it sit there. Don't be selfish. The kingdom is growing. Share it. The temptation is to neglect generosity when we're comfortable. True? True? Oh, I like this. I got my friends. It's good enough. Don't do that. I would encourage you to look to the outskirts and invite people in. If you've got a good friend group, invite them over. Enjoy it. And then invite somebody that you don't know. Bring them in. Have someone over that you're close to, along with somebody that you're not. we got to share it. So if you're like, I'm not there, join in. If you're like, I'm there, help others join in. Five insights. Nehemiah fervently seeks for the will of God to be done. Our response, continue to cultivate a heart fervent for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Second prayer insight, Nehemiah anchors his fervency for the will of God in his knowledge of the word of God. Insight response, recall biblical truth and consider, why are we here? What are we building? Third insight, Nehemiah calls for personal, generational, and community repentance. Guys, as I was thinking about this and putting this together, how powerful it is, and let's not minimize it, when we confess our sins together that we have neglected the community building of God. If my people will confess and turn to me, it's powerful. We'll wait and see. But the Lord will not ignore that. He is gracious and kind and quick to forgive. He's coming to our rescue like He always does. Amen? Fourth insight, Nehemiah appeals to God to be faithful to His promise. Our response, take courage from God's promises and prepare your heart and mind to take action in faith. Fifth, Nehemiah prays to include God's people to build God's kingdom. Our response, join in. Father, thank you for your word and its challenge to us. Oh, oh Lord, let it land on open hearts. And now may we protect the seeds that have been planted, not allow the evil one to steal them, and then cultivate them together. Thankful that we're not alone, that we have one another that we can seek to give help and ask for help. And you've provided it through this amazing group of people, this body, your church. So privileged to be a part of this church family. Run your word deep into our hearts and produce more and more fruit for your glory, for our joy, and for the salvation of 
the joyful salvation, the rescue of people around us. We need you for that. We thank you for your presence promised to us in Christ. Amen.